Welcome to another episode of the Digital Humanities and East Asian Studies podcast. I'm Amanda Schumann, and today with me are the two co-hosts, Maggie Green and Alan Christie. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, Amanda. So the theme of today's show will be an informal discussion about the relationship between digital humanities and teaching. For that, we also have a special guest joining us, Susan Fernsebner, a specialist in modern Chinese history who teaches at the University of Mary Washington. Her research focuses on modern China and particularly on the themes of colonialism, exhibition and public spectacles, as well as the history of childhood. Sue's work has been published in Late Imperial China, JAS, and Postcolonial Studies. She has a forthcoming essay on Chinese participation in early 20th century world's fairs, appearing in an edited volume. Um, she's also currently working on an ongoing project on notions of childhood in early 20th century China. I've specifically asked Sue to join us today for this discussion because she has been one of the first to experiment with digital humanities in classroom projects. And she's been thinking about this relationship between teaching and digital digital methods for a while now. She also runs a blog called Gulo, G-U-L-O-U, named after the drum tower in Beijing, .tumblr.com, where she collects news links as well as resources for teaching and research related to China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and East Asia more broadly. Welcome, Sue. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. So I thought we'd begin with talking more generally about first what we've tried in the classroom, ranging from ways in which we've incorporated digital methods or digital project work into the classroom, uh, what things went well, what things didn't go well, and we'll go on from there. My personal experience in this realm compared to that of Alan, Maggie, and Suze is rather limited. So I won't say too much, but I can talk a little bit about working as Alan's TA. And in that capacity, we did some digital project work in the classroom. Sort of the big project that that I worked on for him was through his Japan World War II Memories class for undergraduates. Every time that he ran that course, there was sort of a digital component to the course. I helped install, uh, I guess it was a media wiki, and then the students were required to post work together collaboratively and post their final projects on that wiki. Alan, I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about how the group project functioned within the capacity of that course and your sort of the history of the digital project component in the course. Sure. So this is a, a large course, uh, enrollment around 200 people uh, that I team teach with a colleague who specializes in oral history. And uh, she had been having her students in her own classes do uh, little oral history projects with uh, with their uh, families or other people in the community, for example. And when we came to, to this larger course, the first time we taught it, uh, we got a response from students that suggested a lot of students wanted to have opportunities to do more research on, on the subject. The, the class is Memories of World War II in the Pacific, so it's a, it's a topic that people really seem to enjoy. So um, my colleagues suggested that we might want to build some group research projects into the large lecture version of the class. I think her initial concept was a kind of collaborative oral history project that students could do, you know, find somebody that has a story to tell about maybe Japanese-American internment or something, gather some documents with them, do an interview, put it all together, put it up. Or, you know, uh, do some research on maybe a local monument. Again, take some pictures, look at some local documents, maybe do some interviews with people around the area, and, and then gather those materials somewhere to share with the students. Uh, the other students in the class. So the first time we did this, uh, Amanda, you built us a site in MediaWiki. So, you know, it was a real simple thing for the students to use, and it worked really well in, in particular ways. They could figure out how to, to write and edit in a wiki really quickly, and they put together some nice 
narratives of the research projects that they had done. But we also found that uh, the other thing that we wanted them to pay attention to in that class was the provenance of some of the things that they were working with. You know, if they had done a research uh, project on, say, I don't know, uh, we'll just say, you know, images of Pearl Harbor, uh, we wanted them to pay attention to the pictures that they were finding and what was what was the provenance of these things, which, which pictures were incredible, which pictures were controversial, that kind of thing. You know, good basic historian work in um, critique of your sources. And what we found was that with the, the wiki platform, they paid almost no attention at all to their sources. <laughs> They wrote good narratives, but they paid almost no attention to their sources. And so in part, uh, thinking about that experience and about how, you know, one of the things that we're trying to teach them in the class is that when you're looking at something that's a, an issue that's an issue for collective memory, like uh, Memories of World War II, you know, being critical about the sources uh, of information that people are bringing is a really important skill. So we wanted to shift the emphasis in the projects over to being more about, you know, doing a research project as before, but being doing it in a way that would encourage them or give them incentives to be much more reflective about the nature of the sources that they were using. And it was at that point that, again, with your suggestion, Amanda, that we decided to build a platform in Omeka. For those who, who know, Omeka was built by the uh, Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason, and it was built for people, I think primarily, you know, archivists and librarians at, uh, you know, like public history associations. It was meant to be a pretty easy thing to get up and running, but because it was really, I think, originally crafted for archivists and whatnot, its primary focus is on, you know, the archival item, which you upload into the site, and then you have to give uh, input all kinds of metadata, and then you assemble your archival items into an exhibition of some kind uh, that is online. So the, the series of steps that students take when they're putting together you know, a presentation of research project in Omeka is one in which they first have to choose the images and the, you know, the files, maybe an audio file or whatnot, that they're going to make appear in their exhibition, do some work on the metadata about that so that they're paying attention to the provenance of these things, and then assemble a narrative. So it's, it's in an opposite direction from the media wiki. Honestly, after several years of doing this, Omeka still is difficult for the students to use. It's still difficult for students to, to do good work on source critique. And there are times when we look at the Media Wiki site and we thought, oh, they wrote such better papers in those days. <laughs> You know, the, 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 uh, the, the project narratives were better in Wiki. It's something I think about, uh, how much a platform really matters for the quality of the students' uh, final projects. Yeah, I mean, you know, Omeka, which is pretty much what we're using here for the Maoist Legacy Project. I mean, I can say now from working on it that, you know, part of the issue is related to what you said. It's not the ideal platform for text in general. So, I mean, there are other issues, too, in terms, in terms of using it and, and usability, but it's not really a type of thing that's designed for sort of long-form narrative. So that's also a big problem. <laughs> it's, it's more about multiple people working on, you know, a sort of public history exhibition. That's kind of what, it, what it's designed for. That just means that there were certain things that get lost in this sort of goal of the software. Right. One of the things that makes wikis a platform for bad writing, i.e. lots of people can come in and edit sentences, right? The same sentences, and then you get this sentence that has lost all voice, was somewhat surprisingly better for the students' writing because the smaller number of them were able to go in and work on each other's sentences in a way that was 
at least at their level of writing, an improvement. Whereas Omeka was not a, a space that was conducive for students to edit each other. No, no. I mean, I think, I mean, you know, and then when I look back on it, though, there were aspects of the wiki that went uh, underused by the students. So I think we talked about this, like going back through the revisions of the history and looking at how people had changed things in the narrative. And I felt like I really had to show students that, that it wasn't clear to them that this was there or how to use it. And also there was another feature of the media wiki, like a talk or a discussion, which I think we got them to use by um, telling them that they were going to be graded on their peer reviews. So they had to go in and write reviews of each other's final projects. And then they finally went in and used the talk button. <laughs> Sue or Maggie, what have you used? One of the things that I've been working with, and I'm really intrigued by the conversation you guys were just having, because it's gotten me thinking about a digital identity course I'm teaching right now with first year students. And I have them working um, individually on what's actually a really traditional style research paper related to the theme of digital identity. So they're exploring the internet and um, different topics related to it, but then they're working in groups to create uh, digital projects. And so they're doing their own sort of tracks on a research project, writing a traditional style research paper, but then collaborating on um, different styles of digital projects. Now, in this case, I'm letting them choose their own sort of tools and their own um, their own platforms with which to create that digital project. So I'm getting podcast series, um, video production, as well as multimedia websites that they're uh, creating with that. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting is watching them go through the learning process of selecting those tools and selecting those platforms and then learning how to use them. And I think there's something um, that really develops there in that learning curve of figuring out, you know, what's available, how to use those different tools, and then which is most suitable for the kind of knowledge that they're creating. Um, there's something about, I think, that process of selecting and elimination and then actually, you know, acquiring the skill of using it and then getting it to sort of, you know, fit or, or express, you know, the, the project that they want to share. And also thinking about the community that they're sharing it with. The projects that they're working on are related to race and social media, uh, the way the body is is sort of expressed uh, and say in Facebook um, and the ways in which you have say advertising pitches and different sorts of um, frames expressing like, you know, what kinds of food to consume and what kinds of clothes to wear, uh, different aspects of consumption and advertising. So they're thinking about, you know, visuality. Um, they're thinking about how to convert a traditional research paper into a different kind of media and share it. And then there's, of course, the the dynamic of collaboration itself. Uh, how do they take their individual sorts of knowledge that they're creating and turn it into a more collaborative project? Um, and then all the, you know, the practical dynamics that go with that, time management, uh, and then, you know, different aspects of actually creating the site uh, or the video or the podcasts themselves. It's been really interesting to watch. We didn't have anything like that when I was an undergrad. We didn't have anything like that when I was an undergrad either, but Sue was still a really great professor, digital humanities or no, so. You didn't even give a full disclosure, Maggie. How do you know Sue? <laughs> yeah, so I was actually a student at University of Mary Washington, um, and Sue is the reason I turned into a Chinese historian, and she's still been a really wonderful touch point for me um, as a grad student, and then as I've gotten my career started, so I'm very grateful for her. Um, I guess... I'll just mention really briefly, since I'm actually not yet doing anything really cool with collaboration, so it's really fun to hear about the stuff that um, Sue is doing and that Alan is doing. Um, 
you know, to this point, I've only used WordPress in my courses, mostly just as an attempt to have slightly more outward facing stuff going on, um, which I have found has had the wonderful side effect of really improving my students' writing. I think because they know that it's not just a disaffected professor that's going to be reading it, but potentially anyone on the internet could be looking at it. But I, you know, maybe we can we can talk a little bit about um, issues, and I think Alan's kind of already pointed to this a little bit of um, both digital literacy, but then also something that I've run into as faculty is institutional support. Um, and the problems that come along with maybe not having kind of what you need. One issue right now at my university is that, uh, for instance, we don't even get fa- web space for faculty. So when I do a WordPress install, um, I have to do it on one of my personal domains, which is a little embarrassing, right? It's, you know, I've got course sites running on syntellectual.org, um, where I would really prefer a montana.edu site. But, you know, even at MSU, uh, especially since we've gotten some new faculty over the past two years, um, we're thinking a lot more about public history. So I'm hoping that with sort of a more emphasis on that, there's also going to come along um, more emphasis on infrastructure and, and resources here for faculty and students. But that still doesn't get us over the hump of what to do with students' tech knowledge, because uh, that's something that I've definitely um, run into quite a lot. Are you also referring to the fact that is uh, that they aren't necessarily digital natives and they need to learn how to use these things? Yeah. Um, so I don't know what everyone else's experiences have been, but, um, you know, many of my, my senior colleagues, I think because students seem really comfortable with technology and are constantly tethered to their iPhones, like during lecture or seminar or whatever, um, think that that means that students know how to do productive things with technology. And I know as Amanda and I have talked about, you know, when I, when I was 13, I was building crappy websites on GeoCities and teaching myself HTML. Um, whereas, you know, I have students that literally do not know how to just do a, a link in a, a what you see is what you get WordPress editor because they're not used to doing that, right? They usually, in many cases, don't have to. Now, obviously, this isn't all students, but uh, many, I've been actually quite surprised how many of them are very uncomfortable with with even sort of things that I consider really basic, right? Like I, I think WordPress is, is pretty easy to use and not terribly complicated to figure out, but I fielded a lot of questions and had a lot of very uncomfortable students who go, I, well, I don't know how to make this work. Um, so that's actually something that I kind of struggle to explain to my, some of my colleagues, you know, or I don't think, I think our students are digital natives in, in one sense, but that doesn't mean that uh, many of them, again, know how to do productive things with technology and have never really had the experience of playing with technology in a way that you kind of have to, to, to do creative work. So I'd be curious to hear um, from Alan and Sue and also you, Amanda, sort of what your experiences have been in terms of the kinds of knowledge that your students come in with and what sorts of things you have to do to kind of get them over that hump and if you can get them over that hump. Um, And maybe some of this goes back to the discussion of platform that we were having earlier. Well, just to quickly uh, jump in on that, because I wanted to ask this of Susan as well, because we also were very slow here to make WordPress available for faculty and staff on campus here. And I used to show them stuff from you, Mary Washington, to try to shame them here. So um, look what they're doing, you, Mary Washington. It's wonderful. Let's do this too, I would say. So Susan, does the fact that your university seems to, seems to have been very active in putting together the uh, support for uh, WordPress pages, has that translated to student preparedness? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know if preparedness is the right word. The support is excellent. I mean, I think I've been really fortunate that way. In just the past, I think it's two years now, we've had um, a, a new... Uh, center established called the Digital Knowledge Center, and it was set up by my colleague Martha Burtis, who helped um, create this center where it's actually students who uh, train and tutor other students in these digital skills. So it's it's a peer tutoring center, and and they do everything from you know how to set up your WordPress page to a new program we have, Domain of One's Own, which has gotten some excellent um, excellent attention lately um, uh, in a variety of, of venues. To you know we have a whole green room set up, and they can get advanced video editing training and and the like. So that I think is excellent. It's not just um, training faculty to train students, but letting tr- students train each other. So the support there is wonderful. So that. I think that makes a world of difference, and I think I think it's really important for institutions to recognize that that support is needed and really valuable. It's not just about um, faculty working with students on this, but also I think um, educational technology specialists who also need to be recognized and supported as as part of this project. It's quite valuable, and they can help um, bring students in. So it's really a community of people working on these. Um, curricular, you know, endeavors. On, on the digital natives, too, I think that's a phrase that we need to retire. I think I think it's a myth. Um, I've been talking about it a lot with my first-year students in this seminar, and my take on it is, is more that we all inhabit our own digital neighborhoods. You know, we have our tools and we have our apps that we know, but whether we use them critically or not is another thing. So I think that's more the conversation we need to have there whether it's the first-year students that I'm talking to or, or my colleagues um, or my parents who are also sitting there on Facebook, you know, reposting what I'm posting and the like. I think that's something more to think about. What neighborhoods are we inhabiting digitally and how are we using these things um, regardless of who we are and what circles we travel in? Maybe that's what we need to think about. What are the digital circles we're traveling in? How are we using these apps? Now that you mention it, I mean, I think the term itself, digital native, I don't know who first said it or where it originated precisely, but my understanding of it was always sort of this idea that, you know, maybe was true 10 years ago or 15 years ago where uh, there wasn't quite as much available in terms of tools that were easy to use. So you really... On the one hand, you had people who were using who were using the internet, and then people who were not just using the internet, but were also able to actually put things on the internet. You know, I mean, I think this is actually related to what's changed in the last ten or fifteen years. And to me, like one of the biggest things I see is that if it's an app or something that uh, is popularly used for social media or what whatever to take videos or to you know send somebody a recording of something these types of easy to use apps uh, on, on many of the smartphones people have that these things have started to change people's ability to be able to quickly produce something whether or not it's good whether or not it's productive <laughs> you know in the grand scheme of things is another question but the ability to produce things very quickly i think actually has changed people and i think you're right i think digital native is not the term but if you are quite comfortable using certain types of apps or programs or whatever to communicate with people in in whatever capacity to write a blog post even if it's you know not on your own blog but it's on a shared blog if you're able to do that then i would say that this is something that has 
I think, quite drastically changed. And even in maybe less than 10 years now, I mean, the students that I see here, I'm not, I don't spend a lot of time with undergrad students here. I'm just talking about grad students. But from the grad students, of course, there are still some who are not interested in doing anything at all that we might remotely call uh, digital project work. They're just not interested. But actually, there's quite um, a few who are not interested in it for the digital aspect, but they're interested in whatever tool they can use to get their research or to get their research done or to post about their research. And if that happens to be, you know, using a particular app or tool or whatever they download online and install, they're not necessarily interested interested so much in the intricacies of how that thing works, but they're interested in using how that thing works to do something new. This is something that's different though than it was even five to 10 years ago. I, I see it as radically different among the graduate student population. Alan, are you still there? I am still here. <laughs> I know you have to leave soon. So can I ask you a question? Yes. Okay, good. It's a question I want to ask everybody, but since you only have a limited amount of time left. My time is, is a little bit more elastic, but it's just good to remember uh, my schedule. Go ahead. Okay, well, it's kind of, you know, not related to what I was just talking about. But could you tell us a little bit about how you see um, the digital methods and the projects that you've done over the years? How has incorporating this into your teaching changed your teaching methods? And can you talk about that in relation to, for example, student engagement? Yeah, well, an important thing about this has been that it has cut way back on my lecturing. It has made me design assignments for students that for some students are a little bit less clear, I suppose, because I'm putting a lot more ability to determine what their project is going to be in their hands than when you have, you know, a prompt that they all have to answer. I give them a lot more room for creativity, but I talk to them about the ability that they now have to really set the terms of they're learning in a particular classroom. Uh, for example, one thing that I did uh, last year uh, or two years ago now, who can tell? Uh, it was two years ago. I was on sabbatical last year. That's why I wasn't last year. <laughs> anyway, I taught a class in early modern Japan, which is a time period that I find difficult to tell in a usual historical narrative. As I tell the students, it's a time when uh, nothing happens and everything changes. So, you know, your standard narratives being driven by politics and war are really hard to assemble in that. What I decided I wanted to do was to invite them to do some close reading and then uh, use that close reading as a platform to go out in, what, in, in directions that they were interested in. So I scanned and then uh, OCR'd a uh, translation of the script of the puppet play Chu Shingura, or the story of the loyal retainers. And I said to the students that the assignment of the class was to annotate the text uh, and we would assemble the text together at the end in something like Apple iBooks or something like that for all of us to, to share together. So as the students would read through the text, they would find things that they needed to find more information on, and they would do the research, and they would produce annotations, they would produce illustrations and whatnot. And so that meant that a lot of time in the class was spent not so much on my agenda, but on their agendas, as they were looking through the text and figuring out what it was that they needed to know. Um, and then what I was doing was I was helping them think about how the questions that they were asking could be improved to be questions about, you know, better contextualization of information or questions that are actually answerable rather than unanswerable questions, that kind of thing. And the students, uh, they really enjoyed it. And so the engagement in the class was incredibly high. People came to class all the time. I would walk into the classroom before the before class time began. Students would be talking with each other, and I could hear overhear in the conversations people buzzing about 
about the stuff that they'd been finding, sharing with their friends. So, you know, from the teacher's perspective, you know, that classroom where everybody's buzzing about the subject matter that you're dealing with before class has even started, and they're still talking about on the way out, and it's not necessarily tied to anything that you particularly said, but to what they've been generating themselves, is one of those great moments in teaching, right? You feel like, hey, I'm in a room with a whole bunch of people who are sharing my passion, and they don't need me to be beating this into them in some sense. So uh, the student engagement has been really high in that kind of thing. The other thing that I think that I always reflect on, because you had all brought this up, wish we'd had this when we were undergraduates. I'm probably the oldest one in this group here. And of course, we didn't have anything close to this when I was an undergraduate. And I'm realizing how much the digital platforms allow me to train the students to think about their work in new ways, right? We never had a chance to think about the audience of our writing because there was only one conceivable audience and that was the professor. But now when you have students doing something like working in medium.com, for example, they have a much bigger audience that they could be thinking about. Or when you're working with them on an annotation of, of Chu Shingura, they have a potentially very different audience and their audience is sometimes quite legitimately each other. So things like audience, things like the credibility of their sources and all, it's so much easier to, to teach them to pay attention to this stuff than it was before. There are times when I worry that, you know, if you turn it over entirely to them, there are all kinds of questions that don't get addressed, right? Um, and so there's there's lots of times when you, as a teacher, you really do have to sort of take control and say, okay, you guys aren't really prepared to ask these kinds of questions, but these are important questions to ask. And so you bring these into the classroom. Just purely letting them generate all the questions of the class isn't always going to turn out really well. I mean, the Chushingura experiment was a lot of fun for everybody. But to be honest, 40% of the class wanted to do research on sex in early modern Japan. And well, you know, I applaud their vitality, as you'd say. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, I would have to keep trying to say, you know, there are, there are other important things as well. And they'd say, yeah, samurai. And I'd say, well, sure, but how about like economy? And so there are problems with that. But on the, on the flip side, I, I've often felt in the past that when I come in, having set the agenda of the questions, it's not, so, it's not that you can just say, okay, here are the questions today, but you have to convince them that those are the questions of the day, right? And you don't give them many chances to learn how to generate good questions, which ultimately we know is if they're able to generate good questions when they've finished a class, that's more successful than whether or not they can remember, you know, Chengdu show or something like that, right? Uh, just to use a, an example from your fields. It's the question generating skill that, that that's the big one. And so that's what this platform has really helped me work on with the students. Well, I, I mean, I would echo and cheer a lot of what Alan's just said. Um, and also, I thinking back to conversations I've also had um, with Alan, too, and things I've learned from him, because I was thinking of, in some ways, um, both the broader scale or the macro scale approaches that I take with the DH and bringing that to teaching, but also um, smaller lesson plans. And one of them has been directly inspired by Alan, too, because I've been thinking a lot about language and teaching and the ways in which, you know, in the past I was more cautious about using Chinese language sources in the classroom because I think, well, my students can't read this or I'll have to translate it for them. Um, but one of the things I did this past spring was um, start thinking about using, you know, online archives in the classroom and having my students work with them and turning you know class periods over to that and over to them and so again this is another case of letting them have the reins 
and also in some ways sort of simulating the dive into the archive, which, you know, I remember from graduate school as being a really heady and exciting and, you know, a certain kind of moment. Um, and here they were going, but of course, most of my students don't have any Chinese or only, you know, very beginning levels of Chinese. So one of the um, lesson plans I did in this gender course was to have them go to the website um, Chinese Women's Magazines in late Qing and um, early Republican China, the early Republican period. Um, that was set up by Barbara Mittler, Joan Judge, Grace Fong, and others. I was just looking at that site today. I just wanted to say, <laughs> just... It's a great site. It's wonderful. So I had them working with, you know, visual culture and these, these images from it, but also um, directly, you know, with captions, or, you know, with text and image. And in the past, the students, you know, would look at pictures and move on. And, and you know, it was it was a lot more sort of opaque. And, and this time, the other thing I was introducing them to were, you know, online Chinese dictionaries and, you know, how to begin to use those, even if they had never encountered a Chinese character before. And at first it was a bit intimidating, I think, for them. But, you know, I encouraged and we jumped in and they started, you know, working with those texts uh, associated with the image. And, it, you know, I did it. I think a two period, two 50 minute periods on this uh, as a two part lesson plan. And the students worked in pairs and they chose their own images and they played with the text. And the interesting thing was uh, they had a translation already to work with if they, if they looked carefully, which was, you know, it didn't take long to find. But most of the students were testing the translations by the end of it, you know, they were, which I thought was great. They were thinking critically, you know, trusting their own play with the online dictionaries and then developing their own critical approaches to reading the text and associating it with the visual image. There was just some great discussions. And then as a group, we, we picked one or two and analyzed them together. And, and some wonderful conversations came out of that. Uh, so that was just a, a wonderful um, way to play with some digital tools and a digital archive. And I'll, I'll definitely be bringing that back. And a larger scale, I think the other thing that's changed in terms of my teaching, again, is this question of maybe control and being willing to let it go a bit. Um, so one of the things I'm doing right now is developing a um, history of child research seminar for next spring and um, I'm going to design the first third of the course but I'm going to design the rest of the syllabus with my students this the last two thirds because I want them doing their own research sort of group research projects and and, and web projects uh, some sort of digital projects related to that but I, I think I'm going to work with them and sort of collaborating on evaluation frameworks and schedules and I think instead of me sort of determining that and dictating that, have us work together. I'm writing some of that and composing that syllabus together, as well as, you know, thinking about the digital. So maybe it's becoming a lot more, I don't know, a lot more of a collaborative process that way, too. It's, it's actually extending to the whole course itself. That's great. My experiences with this kind of thing, the students have become really interested in designing or redesigning the syllabus in a way that I'd never seen in other classes. So I love what you're doing there, Susan. I think it's really about, again, ownership, community and knowledge creation and, and putting those things together. I guess that sort of, you know, answers this sort of question I had about balancing the overall vision of the course with, you know, incorporating these digital methods or whatnot into it. Well, it is. It does, as Susan was saying, it, you find yourself giving up some degree of control. And I know that when I talk about some of these things with some of my colleagues, that's that's where the line gets drawn, right? Because it, it can be quite frightening as a professor to give up control. And certainly you do spend time having to, to do some debunking and whatnot. 
information coming from the students and whatnot. But it really is, as, as Susan was saying, I think you put that wonderfully. It's about creating communities of learning. And, and that really is what we're looking for. And that it's, again, one of those uh, things that the digital platform allows you to do, which is to do collaboration better than, than we have in other ways in the past. Well, and I think the students have a real takeaway from this, too. They're building those communication skills and collaboration skills. The projects that they take from this, too, also, I mean, I've seen some really nice sort of public projects come out of this. And I've had students go on to some great internships. I mean, I don't want to say that that's the only purpose of this endeavor, but I mean, some students I think have really have really been able to take their experiences in these courses uh, to you know to a next level with that um, professionally too. There's a real payoff. I mean, I think that's great actually because for so long, um, as I've talked about before, uh, you have this sort of perceived divide between people who can do one type of work and people who can do another. But, you know, having the training like that as an undergraduate, taking a class in which you have to create these communities, but also to incorporate these digital skills and methods into it is precisely what I think we need to keep doing. And I think that it's a shame when if people go through an undergraduate career, for example, and they get out of it. And there's nothing, I don't want to devalue a straight up humanities degree. I mean, I have one and I I think it teaches you so many important things. I was recently telling someone whose daughter is actually applying to go to Harvard and her daughter's trying to make a decision between if she wants to major or double major in computer science and uh, psychology and do some sort of minor in another field. And I said, no, no, you really should do the double major in those two or do, you know, a strong minor in one of the two. So pick one as a major and do the other one. And that's just because my presumption, maybe I'm totally wrong here, but my presumption is that if you go and do a computer science degree, then there won't be a lot of emphasis on humanities skills or vice versa. So the fact that we have this, you know, like Alan and Sue going out there and sort of creating these courses where you're, okay, you're not doing this hardcore coding of computer science or whatnot, but you have what what history courses are good at, which is teaching these really important skills of close reading, critical inquiry, and these kinds of things. And then on the other hand, you're also sort of seeing how the, how that can then interact with digital methods in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and they don't seem foreign or necessarily something unrelated or, or whatnot. That, that's pretty much, I think, all I, all I wanted to say on that. But I just think it's great that both of you are doing these sorts of things that are still probably, unfortunately, are still considered rather experimental. But I hope that in the future that more people decide to do this kind of thing, even in the undergraduate classroom like that. I was talking about this at a a nice uh, conference in San Diego a couple of weeks ago, and somebody said, uh, are you writing up a meta narrative of any of these projects that you're doing before and I you know I said I want to <laughs> but uh it certainly seems like we could all benefit from hearing what each other are doing in the classroom both in a podcast like this but also having a space to write about it more about the the things that we're trying out and how they're going because I'm loving hearing what Susan is doing in the classroom and I'd, I'd love to be able to read that as well at some point in time but it is difficult to get these things done isn't it <laughs> right Minor detail. Yeah, reading more and having more time to write. Yes, yes. I feel like there must be there must be a journal or something online where people write about. I'm trying. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but where I've come across um, people talking about uh, digital humanities and the classroom. Well, there's nobody who's ever you know done something like what both of you have done in East Asian studies. I think where you're trying to incorporate the undergraduate students in using these tools to get through language issues. I mean, that's really novel. 
Well, so I mean, there's something like Digital Humanities Quarterly, or you know, as one as one possible place. But we should be looking around, and I, I certainly tell myself to sit down and write some of these experiences up, the good and the bad. It's a great idea. It's, who's going to initiate it? I haven't got any time either. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I really do have to do it. I just have to do it. So yeah, I'll try. I'll give it a shot. Having said all that, one of the things in my current job is that I run a large introductory, you know, first year, first quarter class for freshmen. All the freshmen in, in my college take the same class. And so one of my jobs is to uh, go observe the classrooms and the different instructors as, as they're doing their work. And so I'm, I'm due to go visit one of the instructors now. And, and I have to say that this particular instructor, the last time I, I went to the class was fabulous. It was so good. And it was entirely low tech. I'm, I'm looking forward to this because I, I, this person was great in the classroom and it's going to be, I'm going to have a good morning once I go see this. And here's the thing that I really, one of the things that I really liked about this person's approach, this person knew how to be quiet, how not to fill out the silence in the room, but make the students talk. And, uh, and the students, really talk, but this this person could stand in front of the room and have this bemused smile that just had the students <laughs> talking. It was wonderful. And I just think it's going to be great to go see this person uh, run another class today. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that takes a special sort of skill. I can't do that. I don't like hearing myself talk, but at the same time, just having that awkward, empty silence when none of the students are speaking. It's brutally hard. So I enjoy going to see this person do it because because uh, the students' participation was good. What they were saying was good the last two times I went to see. So I'm going to sign off here and, and say I apologize for leaving early. And, and it's great to hear you, Susan and Maggie and Amanda. I hope the conversation continues well, and I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Bye, Alan. I, I guess the other sort of thing that I really wanted to to talk about is something I've been thinking about personally. I've been thinking about it for many years is there's sort of digital methods in the classroom. And then there seems to be this sort of divide with digital humanities. Do we need, or should there be a sort of course or some sort of training or some sort of workshops for people to learn these skills or learn about what digital humanities more broadly is. I get the feeling that perhaps what a lot of departments in the humanities side might be very interested in or might not be very interested in is having a class that focuses on sort of on digital methods or digital humanities. And as such, what I've run into in a couple cases is where the idea to have sort of extracurricular workshops or, you know, people can, where people can learn a new skill or whatnot. These are sort of an extra, it's an extra thing on the schedule. And we've all got, you know, so much time to do that. But is there a way in which we could incorporate learning these new skills into a separate class? Or should we do that? Or should we not? Should everything, everyone be doing what Alan and Sue are doing? Well, I guess speaking from my perspective, I mean, I actually, I don't know, and Sue, as Susan can speak to this, I don't, I don't know if Mary Wash has changed their undergraduate degree structure and history since I was there. But, you know, we had a, what I always affectionately refer to as the baby methods class, which is a 200 level class. And it was, you know, teaching you how to research and teaching you how to write a, a little research paper and write lit reviews and also teaching you how to talk and, and read, which we don't have here. I can't imagine trying to convince my colleagues that we needed to add a component like this to to our curriculum, you know? It would be really nice if there were some some way to incorporate it more. But, you know, from my perspective, almost the nicer thing would be to have um, kind of what Susan mentioned at, at Mary Wash, having this center that's not just about teaching faculty how to use things, but teaching students how to use things and students teaching other students 
how to use things. Because um, I'm thinking of things like, you know, it's really common, of course, in, in many humanities classes, I think, to take students down to the library and set up a meeting with the librarians to teach them how to use the library and teach them what kinds of resources we have. Um, so having something like that on campus would be great, you know, some sort of resource where um, I could send students down and I wouldn't be answering emails at 2 a.m. on how to put a link on WordPress, you know. That's just from my perspective at my particular university. Yeah, my take is, I mean, these things evolve. And I, I believe when I was first starting at my university, there may have been, Maggie, maybe you can remember, was there a course you had to do that was that you checked off a box that you had completed a certain training and some kind of, at that point, it might have been like even almost information technology competency or something along those lines? Yeah, it does sound vaguely familiar. I seem to recall it was either here or at UCSD, but I do seem to recall having to do some sort of online course that involved things like prove that you can put together an Excel sheet with formulas and stuff. I mean, maybe that was at UCSD. I don't remember. But it was it was some kind of checkbox that you had to do to say like, yes, I understand what word processing is and know how to work my email. That's one fear I have about, and, and granted, I think we could be careful that a, a separate DH course wouldn't evolve into that. But I think there are still risks at sort of segregating DH into its own course category that it could turn into being just focused on the tools and something called hard skills and separating that from something else that we might call soft skills as if these are, you know, different categories. I'm having flashbacks to the typing course I took in eighth grade that was all about hitting the keys, you know, and not about learning how to write. And granted, that was a different day and age and I didn't learn how to type very well. But on the other hand, I think there's something to actually thinking about the fact that these tools always have a context in which they're used and that tools evolve really quickly. They appear, they get used for a while, and then they vanish and a new tool emerges. So for me, I think there's something really valuable about keeping the DH really sort of integrated within an evolving curriculum, actually, and within still the departments and fields. So I tend to lean towards, I think, maybe not totally separating out the course, or at least if, if one is going to do so, maybe still leaving that to different fields to develop for themselves somehow. But it's an ongoing conversation, I think, at many institutions these days. But I think there's also an ongoing conversation about it not just being about the tools or how do we define digital digital literacies or digital fluencies um, that's happening at the moment. That's a really interesting one, too, um, and, and worth sort of digging into. You know, I was thinking as both you and Alan were talking, and now as you and Maggie were discussing the curriculum at Mary Washington, I mean, it seems to me like a more useful way of doing it would be incorporating, you know, if, it, if we're just talking about tools, which is not, I guess, what I'm talking about, but, you know, if it were just the digital tools themselves, I would think that would be something you would incorporate, you know, in a research methods kind of class, like you would have a research methods class that did a lot of other things, whether that's um, going to the library or figuring out how to use online databases, but also that would introduce some of these tools that you would use that that you could then use in your research. I guess like I was thinking of where would you put something like, I don't know, learn how to make like a short, a short form documentary. I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there or with, with, you know, maybe they've done some oral history work or maybe they've worked with a museum locally. I don't know. That's sort of a public history thing there. But in any case, like how would you incorporate the skills so they would learn just enough sort of 
basic audio video skills or whatever so that they know how to download, you know, certain kind of programs and, and where would they have the space to do that, I guess is what I'm thinking of. So it'd be more about like, you know, incorporating that into some other course, obviously. That's kind of an interesting question because of course, Susan and I both shared a graduate advisor who has a class that was um, always very, very popular with the undergraduates, which was focused on, you know, the golden age of Chinese cinema and silent cinema. Um, and their final project, we broke them into to groups of 10 was to, or something like that, um, was to make a, a film in the style of a 1930s, you know, Shanghai silent film. And I mean, their, their end products are really good. And Susan, I mean, I, I think you TA'd for that class, obviously, before well before I did. But Paul Pickowitz, our advisor, just I think just kind of turned the students loose. I mean, I don't even know what resources were in place, and the students cranked out really great films. But certainly, you know, we weren't kind of helping them with that process. I, I don't even know how they got it done. I mean, that's actually a really good question I never really considered before. But we didn't have workshops or, or anything. Um, they definitely didn't have a green room. I don't think at that time. Right. Yeah. No. And and certainly even when I was teeing for it, um, I mean, obviously I think it had gotten a little easier with digital technologies and stuff, but um, we just kind of turned students loose and they, they got stuff done. But that is actually a really good question. Yeah. Like what, what kinds of resources were in place? I mean, this is just somewhere where I, I do think, again, this sort of model of having some kind of some centralized resource on campus so that whatever you're doing with these kinds of projects, you have some place to direct students to, you know, and some, some resources that you can go use as well if necessary. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about lately, too, is, is a balance between content and creation. And of course, you know, how much, how much content am I looking to, you know, what's the right word, disgorge, uh, you know, to the students versus, you know, how much are they creating and how do I balance time and a schedule for that? I mean, I think this is one of the things I'm thinking about with this childhood course I'm, I'm creating for next semester. And, you know, I was all set to sort of lay out a classic sort of senior level seminar with this long reading list. And then I thought, no, wait a minute, I'm going to let them, I'm going to create some of that, but I'm going to let them create it alongside me as they're developing those research projects. And then also, you know, leave a good period of time that we're scheduling together for exactly, I think, the kind of, the kind of projects you're talking about, like actually figuring out what's the technology they need to use, where to go find it and find the training in it. And, you know, what they're going to create uh, out of those research projects. Um, so some of it, I think, is about rearranging um, syllabi or recreating syllabi for exactly that kind of training. And then again, yeah, where is the support on campus for that? Um, and, and do we have it? But the students are indeed really resourceful. The other thing I think that is also an advantage these days is that there's also a lot of freeware out there and free software out there and resources that are openly available and actually finding ways to share that is, um, I think, really important to um, and keeping in mind that they don't necessarily have to. Um, anyways, I think I think talking about that with students and um, that's one other element of support that's worth investigating. Just a note. No, I mean, I think that's a good point. That was one of the reasons I was going to mention Jeff McClurkin's liberal arts workshop links page at his his own site, McClurkin.org, because he does a number of workshops, usually at the American Historical Association annual meeting at the that camp that they have there he's done that i think um multiple times and he's got a um a google docs page that's openly available 
that has many, many links to different resources. And some of them also have information on how to use as well as blog posts introducing and the like. Um, that's really a great resource. I can share the link to that too. Highly recommend it. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this. Like, where would you, if you don't have a place on campus to to send students to? For me personally, I think a lot more, just because of my current situation, I think a lot more about graduate students rather than undergraduate students. But I find graduate students, it's really quite difficult because you still have a lot of focus, particularly if you're doing East Asian studies. There is so much already packed into what you're doing for your graduate work. It's just really difficult if you want to add something else to it, particularly if you don't have any models available to you. In other words, there isn't somebody else in your program or a professor on campus who's already working with, you know, in, in any sort of broadly speaking, digital projects or digital humanities, whatever. If you don't have somebody that you can go to easily and talk to about this, it can feel, you know, quite uh, lonely, I think. And also, I mean, let's be frank, like there are a lot of programs that are not necessarily supportive of sort of going a little bit off in a different direction. I've heard stories too before where people say, well, my advisor was all fine for me going to, you know, going off in this direction and doing something if I could prove that I would definitely, you know, produce results and which is a little bit unsurprising, I guess. But when you think of everything else that's on your plate as a graduate student, you know, if you're a non-native Chinese speaker, for example, and you have to go and learn good enough Chinese to deal with your sources and go off to China to do this research or to actually add something else that you have to learn to that is really just, it's too much, you know, for a lot of people. This is just something I've been thinking about. Like, how would you incorporate like digital anything into your research, like text analysis or, or, or whatever on a set of documents that you collected. And it sounds like a really great idea because maybe you could find patterns in the text. You know, you have to figure out how to digitize them, search through them, whether OCRing them or whatever. And then you have to search around for a text analysis tool. Da, da, da. Meanwhile, you have your advisor or other people in the department saying, what are you doing? You don't have time for this. Well, I mean, I, I think this is a general problem at all levels of the academy, right? Because certainly as junior faculty, like, I mean, I'm currently, of course, feeling the crunch and going like, yeah, it'd be great to do all sorts of things. But oh, my God, I have to publish my book so that I can get tenure. Because frankly, um, certainly at my university, it would be great to be like, oh, look at all this cool digital stuff I'm doing with my students, or look at all this cool digital stuff I'm doing with my research. But if the book isn't out, it, it doesn't matter because I'm, I'm not getting tenure. So, you know, I think this is a balancing act that we all have to deal with. And, and this is where I think having collaborative communities and environments that encourage sort of collaboration, both between faculty and then with, you know, faculty and students and students and students um, can be really valuable because that does wind up taking a little bit of the pressure off, right? If you don't have to start from ground zero, but can plug into um, a network or tools or whatever that already extent and get help in figuring out how to use them and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think it may come down to, you know, are there, and this is true, if, I think, for any sort of, uh, you know, getting involved in any kind of new project or, you know, another piece of a bigger project, can you break that down? You know, maybe there's a smaller step towards that you can take. I mean, I remember just getting involved in the digital in the first place, and it was not doing these bigger projects with students, but just getting them blogging. And then same thing for me, you know, okay, Twitter, I'll try it out, you know, and oh, okay, blogging, I'll give it 
to start. You know, so maybe it's not some of the bigger sort of analytic projects, but okay, I'll I'll set up a Zotero account and then we'll take it from there. You know, so smaller steps and 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 again, I think networking um, and talking to other people who are already doing it and finding those ways to balance it and then taking it from there. No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is another reason why I think we should be, you know, having these uh, workshops that take place everywhere just recorded. So somebody, so people that can't immediately find or get access or, or know where to start have these, they can watch them in their spare time or whatever and, and try to figure out how to, how to use something in particular that's been used by somebody else before finding something intimidating. You wouldn't find it intimidating if you see somebody else who's already used it, who's in the same sort of background or field or training, you know could see somebody actually, maybe their research question is totally different, of course, but they were able to answer that research question with this and maybe it would work for you too, but you have to actually see it in order to to learn how to do it. So can I just ask you really quickly, Sue, you on your campus, you've been co-chairing a digital scholarship institute? Yeah, it's a um, it's actually a group where I'm working with uh, my co-chair, uh, Elizabeth Lewis in, in, in uh, Modern Foreign Languages and Mary Kaler, who runs our Center for um, Teaching Excellence and Innovation. And um, what the Institute is, is actually um, a, a group of us running a uh, running workshops and different programming um, series on campus where we have folks meeting to talk about um, different digital projects that they're doing, especially in teaching and curriculum development and pedagogy, uh, but also at the intersection of research and teaching itself, too. So we've been doing workshops for faculty where we're talking about um, blogging um, and digital portfolios. Uh, and especially trying to really developing conversations across the fields. This is one of the advantages, I think, of, of being at a small liberal arts college, um, getting folks talking across different fields and also talking across the humanities uh, and the sciences, too, um, breaking down some of those divides, such as they are. But also having folks present um, different projects they're doing in um, website design, database design. We had um, a great project presented about a year ago uh, by uh, Andy Levy-Smith, who works in historic preservation, who has students doing wonderful projects and um, mapping uh, sites in, in, the, in, in our town, Fredericksburg. So it's just a great way for people to get together and share, do maybe on a local scale at, at our institution what would be great to do on a broader scale, maybe in East Asian studies, um, share the different projects that they have going um, in digital humanities and, and sciences and social sciences, um, share them with each other, talk across the fields or subfields, look at the ways in which they're um, utilizing different projects to create knowledge and also doing it you know, at different levels. For us, it's, it's um, largely undergraduate, but also graduate, um, and, and especially with the School of Education, but also business too these days. So it's been really productive and there have been a lot of really great conversations coming out of it. It's always nice to hear when people are working across department boundaries on things like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoy it. It's great to talk to folks, you know, working in physics as well as geography and history and, you know, historic press, etc. It's it's just been really great. Folks in chemistry everywhere. It's 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 something it, it makes for a lot of really good conversations. I'm trying to think of what I would have in common with a physicist right now, but well, thinking about how they're using digital tools, uh, or like there were folks in bio who were taking students out into the field and, you know, doing digital projects with them. And then, um, you know, somebody working in poetry, too, you know, with their students doing different kinds of publication and production and like sitting down, in a, you know, in a room with like, we were doing uh, something uh, where we had where we had faculty meeting every two weeks and bringing, you know, developing projects together and talking about them in process. And it was just a, a great conversation. 
So Sue, you've you've also put together a website on TaipingCivilWar.org. So what is TaipingCivilWar.org? So that's a site that came out of a course I was doing, so methods course. Actually, Maggie's mentioned that too. I think you did the one semester version. We now have a two semester version. Um, and that was the first half. It was focused on historiography. And so this, this was a course in which we were beginning to look at ways to incorporate digital humanities into a methods course training for history students. And what I did there was um, have the students work in groups and create a website that was devoted to the topic that was also the theme of, of this historiography class. And so students were reading various secondary sources on the topic. I also had them do a smaller unit in which they were reading primary sources and dabble in digital humanities by creating a website devoted to the topic too. And so what they were doing was creating a bibliography, a timeline, a map of primary sources that they explored, and also doing an author interview. So most of the students were sophomores in that class. There were also some juniors who had transferred in from community colleges in the area. So it was really their introduction to the major in a lot of ways, their first of a two-part methods course series. So they were getting their skills, they were beginning to sort of lay their skills in, in history methods, but also beginning to lay skills in digital humanities too. So it's, it's, it's a um, website that came out of that. It was fairly productive. I mean, they did group work, they had to learn how to collaborate, you know, on a digital project. And they also built skills in sort of diverse tools. They worked with Zotero, they worked with a timeline a creation tool, Google Google Maps. And then they also uh, were doing an author interview. So they were using recording devices. And, and very nicely, Toby Meyerfong worked with us on that. And they interviewed her about her What Remains book. It was a really, it was a really nice project that they engaged in. And I had the help again of our digital technology and, and learnings folks at Mary Washington too. Um, Ryan Brazell helped me uh, he's now at the University of, of Richmond, but um, he was very helpful, and he's also blogged on the topic, too. And I've also blogged on the topic, um, and I can share those links with you. But in a sense, it was just a great project and um, getting the students' feet wet, sort of hopping in the deep end of the pool for the first time in digital humanities. And, and I was experimenting on combining that with a methods course. Yeah, it's something, it's something that I'm looking forward to doing again. No, I mean, it, sound, it sounds really great. I think I've seen the website before, but I haven't read your blog post on it. So I'm going to go and read your blog post on it. Yeah, the site, I think what I'm going to do next is in a future methods course, have my students update the site. Uh, so it'll be sort of a, a working project. So one of the things that we can do in the future is have another round of students go back and update it and fine tune it and, and sort of work as editors. So maybe it's about uh, deconstructing and reconstructing a website as a second round. Oh, that sounds like a really good idea. We'll definitely follow you on that. If you have another website link to give us in the future, you should do that. In the meantime, I will put up links to the blog post by Sue and also by uh, Ryan Brazell, the education um, technology consultant who helped them with that site. You know, I think we're out of time here. We've been going on for too long now. So um, I just want to thank both of you for taking the time today, especially Sue for taking the time out of your busy day and Alan too for taking the time out of his busy day, even though he's gone. But um, thank you, Sue, for joining us today. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, fantastic conversation. Lots of topics, lots of things, you know, working in my brain right now. So thank you both again. And for our listeners, this podcast and the links mentioned in today's episode will be available at www.dheastasia.org. You can also download the podcast via iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll tune in next time.